Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for mostly Maine and mainly history. A century ago, Maine was a center of the paper industry. Its mills churned out huge quantities of high-quality paper, and they employed tens of thousands of people in high-paying jobs. But in the later 20th century, those mills and their communities entered into a period of dramatic decline. Today, we'll be discussing that process from the perspective of the people who worked in those mills from Rumford to Madawaska, until, increasingly, they didn't. It's a story of changing visions of capitalism in America and struggles over who gets a say in how a business is run and who a business is for. You'll notice an absence of tree pumps, which don't work well with my vocal timber. I can't paper over the fact that this intro is done. So let's do this. My guest today is Michael Hillard, professor of economics at the University of Southern Maine. He's the author of the recently published Shredding Paper, The Rise and Fall of Maine's Mighty Paper Industry. Michael, welcome to Mainly History. Nice to be with you, Ian. Maine isn't the only state with a lot of trees. Why was the paper industry so big for so long in Maine? Uh, well, that's a great question. In a lot of ways, it's where I start my book. Um, my first chapter is called A Ra- Maine, A Rags to Riches Story. Um, and uh, so the story kind of starts uh, early in the uh, Industrial Revolution. So I'd say that like before 1870 in the United States. Up until that time, paper, um, you know, paper's made from fibers and different fibers can work. So historically, for like a millennia, you know, the craft production of paper uh, was based on the input of cloth rags. And what happened is, is that with the explosion of population growth in the United States, with the, um, the rapid increase of literacy, at least amongst white uh, Americans in the 19th century, African-Americans caught up in the 20th century with literacy, uh, there was just an explosion of uh, demand for paper, for newspapers and you know penny novels, all that kind of stuff, uh, pamphlets all big things of the 19th century. Um, And so what happened is, is that um, the paper manufacturers in the United States, uh, where they were closer to urban centers, where, you know, the collection of rags was sort of an easier proposition. And by the 1870s, it was clear that we were running out of uh, resources. Um, uh, Manufacturers in the United States were scrambling across the the globe to try and find uh, cloth rags because they couldn't find enough in the United States. Um, And so there was a long period, I mean, this is the Industrial Revolution, where there's a lot of uh, engineering and um, mechanical experimentation. Um, So a series of chemists uh, and engineers in Europe, the United States worked on a solution for that, and they were able to figure out how to make 
paper out of a particular kind of trees, uh, spruce fir and poplar was the other breed. And they kind of mastered this technology using a sulfite chemical process in the 1870s. Well, what did that mean? It meant that, you know, the ingredients, uh, geographically speaking, for mass production in paper was a large source of the right kind of trees, um, spruce fir being uh, eventually the preferred one. Rivers, because you need water systems that do a couple of different things. One is until the mid 20th century, water, you know, systems were the way in which the trees were moved. You know, the logs that were cut down were moved to the um, paper mills and you need paper requires a lot of water in production because there's a lot of steam used in the production process. And then finally, there was a need because this is the advent of hydroelectric power. Paper mills in Maine were amongst the first factories in the United States to have their own electric power sources by building hydroelectric dams. Um, So you needed rivers with sharp waterfalls. Um, And so the West Branch of the Penobscot and Androscoggin River, um, you know, just a series of rivers were really great for that purpose. And so in the end, Um, there was kind of a hunt for the right geographic place that would have all these different elements and that place turned out to be the deep woods of northern Maine. So um, it's almost like at that point, kind of a gold rush in a sense. I mean, people think of like the West Coast, you know, the Rockies as the frontier, but, you know, north of Bangor, Maine, (laughs) or even north of Portland, Maine was also the frontier in the late 19th century. So there was this massive infusion of capital um, between the 1880s and the first decade of 20th century to build these massive, you know, complexes. You had to build a paper mill, but you also had to build dams and sluiceways and hydroelectric dams. And uh, they were tremendously capital intensive from the start. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, Maine then and now is the most forested state in the, in the country, you know, around 90% of the, the land mass is covered with trees. We had the right kind of trees, um, seven major river systems. That is a really good point that uh, in the sense of, I think many people from outside of Maine don't always realize just how many rivers there are in Maine and how central Maine's rivers have been to its economic as well as as a social life for so long, beginning with, of course, uh, indigenous people all the way through to today. Or certainly that isn't the first thing that comes to mind uh, among many folks who think about seacoasts or other things like that. Both of those are are really great observations. I mean, we have 2,500 miles of coasts. We've had um, semi-unique marine resources. Um, So there was this kind of gold rush to Maine at that time, starting the late 1880s, really, um, where it became companies known as International Paper, Great Northern Paper. Um, and Oxford, and then there was quite a few others as well. So, um, so Maine became the place to be. Later, like around the turn of the 20th century, a little bit after uh, Maine, um, the one other state that really joined um, uh, as a parallel site of paper production was Wisconsin. Uh, so anyway, um, the paper industry came to Maine. Uh, one of the things that I really kind of chart in my book is... Um, how, you know, most people don't know like what a paper mill is. If you were to ask the average citizen, what's the difference between a paper mill and an automobile factory, they would scratch their head. But it turns out um, the nature of production is vastly different than an assembly line place. So it basically requires a lot of very complex machine skills. 
because the production of every run of paper and many mills like the SD Warren mill that I profile the most um, would often make, you know, a whole bunch of different products and a whole bunch of different paper machines over the course of the week. So there's, you know, the mixing of the pulp for certain characteristics, then they would add all kinds of chemicals and just materials like um, alum and clay and things like that to the mix to create something called a furnish. And then it gets sprayed onto this machine called the Fordrinier, which is the proper name for a paper machine, where the pulp at that point is about 98% water. It gets thrown on these uh, gyrating um, greens that make the, the fibers in the in the pulp kind of crosshatch to give it strength. And then it goes through like a whole process of squeezing the water out and then drying the water out in the series of these cylinders comes out the other end. So it's a very, very complex um, skill intensive process, you know, skills specific to working with the machinery and the, the production processes that they engage in. And so quality control is a huge thing. So the kind of paper that Maine first became sort of at the vanguard of was high quality publication papers, uh, book papers, um, magazine papers, especially coded publication papers, which added a whole nother layer of technology. And so with the sort of technology and skill intensive nature of these mills, by the 1920s, actually many of the major mills in Maine had their own research and development centers, which is, you know, kind of almost head scratching to think that, oh, there was a scientific, you know, high-tech R&D research center in deep rural Maine with MIT and Syracuse and UMaine, you know, scientists and engineers working in them. So it was quite a very specific kind of industry. And so, you know, you built these, uh, the, the owners and the managers and the investors built these really kind of massive, sophisticated, very technologically advanced production sites in the, you know, the great North Woods of Maine. So by, you know, 1910, we were leading the country and we led the country in paper production for, we were one of what I would call the, one of the two Detroits of paper. This was the hub of where paper was being made. Not that there were paper mills all over the place, but the scale, the volume, and the sophistication of the products were really um, very much a feature of the main paper industry. At its height, how many people were working in the main paper industry? Much the first half of the 20th century was kind of between two branches of the industry. So one of the things I highlight in the book is that, of course, uh, logging for what's called pulpwood is part of the industry. Um, and it's an interesting uh, kind of byproduct of the history of the main forestry industry that for a majority of time, most of the people who cut wood for paper mills were not employees of the paper mills. They were contractors, um, often contractors hired not directly, but indirectly through what are called jobbers um, in, the, in the North Woods. And so, so you have these two different sectors of the industry, you know, the people who are employed by the mills and those who are employed in the woods. In terms of who were employed, how many were employed in the mills, I think it was kind of around 10 to 15,000 for a long time. And then there was a big, um, the biggest time of expansion uh, other than its beginnings was after World War II. So like from the late 40s to the mid 60s. Um, so at that time, if you included both those who worked in the mills, which was about 20,000, those worked in the woods, about 10,000, um, I think like 67 or 68, it peaked at 32,000 workers. So, you know, like scale of the auto industry, no, but again, these are super highly productive, more capital intensive than labor intensive if you're talking about the mills themselves. And if you looked at it from the point of view of what kind of industrial communities got built, these were towns in rural Maine with 
10 to 20,000 people, but everybody who was there worked at the mill. And then you had, you know, another 10, 15,000 uh, folks working in the woods, cutting the wood for the, uh, for the production process. And the other thing to know about this is that these mills by far, it's not necessarily true for the loggers, but for the mill workers, they were by far the best paid manufacturing jobs in Maine. They were very much from the start because the industry typically was most of the mills were run in a very paternalistic fashion, unlike an assembly line where you can basically use the process of monitoring workers here. You must keep up with the pace of work, and if not, they'll replace you with somebody waiting for you at the factory gates. Sort of the assembly line model in the paper industry, you can't do that. You can't take somebody off the street and put them on a paper machine and have them make paper. And in fact, one of the things I outlined in the book is that without the skill of the, the first and second hands, the pulp mill and working in other parts of the mill, and especially on the paper machines, instead of making a million dollars in a shift, you could lose a million dollars in a shift because, you know, um, impurities or imperfections, which are extremely common, any, every given week they were working out bugs. Um, a run of paper is like a, a, the proverbial sort of touchy souffle. It's you know, very easy to spoil. And so the employers really relied on the commitment as well as skill of the workers. And so, you know, you couldn't sort of supervise those skilled workers into making those judgments. They had to make them on their own. And so the level of trust and commitment had to be very high. And so the mill culture from the very beginning was to pay workers, um, you know, again, much better than uh, comparable manufacturing jobs in the region, and to give a lot of independence and voice to those workers as well. Later in the um, century, sort of like 40s, really, is when most of the industry unionized. Um, and when they unionized, they just sort of basically kind of firmed up the understandings and agreements of the earlier paternalistic era. And one of the things that the industry enjoyed for a long time as a result was labor peace, which uh, was um, very distinct in the especially 30s, 40s, and 50s, because it was a time in our country where workers in general were not just joining unions, but striking and occupying factories. And you didn't see anything like that in Maine. And you didn't see much militancy from workers until things changed in the 60s. That process you describe probably helps explain why Maine is one of only two states to never vote for Franklin Delano Roosevelt for president. <laughs> yeah. So despite all of the, the people working in industry, that this, this paternalistic practice that you described. Yeah. What sorts of people took these jobs? Was this, uh, did it attract a lot of the French Canadians who, yeah. who came to Maine? Or was this people from out of state? Or was it mostly locals? You know, there was probably for a lot of the 20th century period that we're talking about, there were probably upwards of about 30 mills, including some pretty small ones that made like very specific products, like little, you know, cardboard box companies that employed 200 people and stuff like that. But there were about a dozen to 14 major mills that employed one to three or 4,000 uh, workers. Uh, you know, it's hard to fully generalize, but I would say there's sort of like three versions of the story to tell about who the workers were. There was S.D. Warren, which was founded in 1854 by Samuel Dennis Warren uh, in Westbrook. And that was before there was a lot of immigration to Maine. And so the first workers 
workers that were recruited to work at that mill were kind of local, you know, I'll use kind of Yankee wasp, um, Scotch, Irish, English um, as one sort of ethnic category. So that's who was hired at SD Warren over the first couple of decades. And they begrudgingly, because of some labor shortage, started to hire French Canadians in the 1870s and 1880s. And it was the one mill in the state where the French Canadians and the non-French Canadians were, it was very much dominated by the um, wasp workers. And, and interestingly enough, one of the things I discovered, uh, there's a really great book by uh, Timothy Minchin, a really notable labor historian called The Color of Work about how the paper industry after World War II came to the South and how uh, the paper companies and the unions themselves went along with setting up segregated um, workplaces and segregated union locals. And obviously the African-American workers in the South were given all the dirty jobs, you know, basically the pulp mill and the woodlot, chemicals, you know, moving wood, um, extreme elements of heat and cold, all that kind of stuff. And so those were segregated African-American workers in the South in, in Westbrook at SD Warren. It was the French Canadian workers who were put there and stuck there for generations. And I got a lot of lore and oral history interviews about how um, even speaking French in the mill was, uh, was discouraged and looked down upon. The other end of the spectrum would be Fraser paper in the upper St. John Valley in the tip top of roof of Maine, centered in Madawaska and Edmondson, uh, New Brunswick. That was a um, Acadian French, culturally, ethnically, Francophone community where all the workers were French Canadian citizens on the, on the, on the Canadian side of the border and French Canadian Americans on the uh, American side of the border and ethnically homogeneous. But there, there was in a hierarchy where the, the managers were all, uh, it was a Canadian owned company for a long time, most of its history. The managers were Canadian English. Um, and there was a huge divide up there. And I tell the story of a strike that um, uh, has, has to do with those ethnic conflicts. And then all the rest of the mills were kind of the classic, you know, mass production factory story of the United States. Um, you know, I'm sure you're familiar, Ian, but your listeners, um, if you were to read the labor histories of the steel and coal and auto industry, you know, which all kind of exploded in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was mainly immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe that um, staffed those mills. And so you had a version of that in Maine where you had folks coming from Southern Eastern Europe, Italy, you know, Slavic countries, and then also, again, fair number of French Canadians, because that was probably the biggest um, immigrant infusion into Maine's uh, manufacturing industry at the time. And then uh, a lot from the, from the maritime provinces as well. In terms of who's doing the work, some industries, especially in the 19th century, began as mostly women workers, textiles famously. Mm. Uh, was that the case with the paper industry as well? Or was this by the 20th century typed as a sort of men's industrial work? Men's with an important caveat. So all of the work that I described before, I left out one part of the production process that I'll discuss in a second. All the work that I described before is always done by men. That loosened up a little bit in the last 30 or 40 years, but not very much. The other major occupations within the mill, besides working in the pulp and the paper machines, was uh, because the machinery was so... I mean, when you go inside a paper mill... You think you might be like in a petroleum refining sort of operation. There's just pipes everywhere and vats of things with chemicals in them. Well, with all the pipes and machines and electrical connections and everything that run everything, 
they have a huge uh, staff of maintenance workers. So these are highly skilled tradespeople and boilermakers and electricians and carpenters, by the way, typically with their own uh, union locals. So that's one end of the process. And again, those are still all male. Um, I did meet and interview some women who became, uh, you know, like in the 1990s. Um, um, and then at the other end of the process, women were hired to count, that is to say, count reams of paper by hand, sort of piece work, piece rate work, and inspect the paper for blemishes. And of course, if paper quality is a central component of how you make your money, they were actually the last line of defense in a sense of delivering a product that the customer would accept and continue to buy. So like at SD Warren at its peak, there were probably 3,200 workers there in 1966 and about 700 of them were women who worked in shorter shifts, uh, six hour shifts. So they had more time to take care of their kids and the family. But yeah, so women were working the mills from the start, but just in that one occupation. You mentioned paternalism. In the case of these big mill towns, are these company towns of the sort that emerged in other parts of New England in the nation where the company owned most of it and, and, and ran company stores and such? Or did these towns sort of grow up alongside the mills and, well, not be a company town? Yeah, they were paternalistic company towns would be the way I would put it in that the ethos of those mills from the owners and, and mill managers on down was, you know, sort of the shared, we're like a family sort of culture. And because they were building paper mill towns in the wilderness, like building the mill would take two years. They would bring in all these, you know, workers um, to live in tents for two years. So if you're going to build a, a, a mill like a Great Northern Paper in Millinocket with a big bang, you need to build housing. You need to build amenities. And again, interestingly enough, is that some of these uh, communities uh, were the first worker communities that had full electricity in the 1890s, uh, as early as that. So Did the company build schools? In some cases, they built schools, um, but they certainly built housing. They built other forms of public uh, infrastructure. I mean, if you drive out to Westbrook now, you know, they had a pulp mill in Westbrook until 1999, and you could smell it. Before, just before you hit the mill, there's this sort of split in the road, and there's this kind of elegant five-story brick building, kind of pie shape that actually has a gymnasium, or at least originally had a gymnasium. That was built by uh, by S.D. Warren himself, you know, back in the 1880s, um, you know, to have a library and a gym and things like that. So you had um, uh, paternalism in the 19th century, which is very informal and personal, evolved into this movement called corporate welfareism in the early 20th century, where employers to earn the goodwill of their employees, and especially to try and thwart their workers um, being interested in unions, would create a lot of amenities, sort of civic and public work. So, so certainly the mills were building uh, or supporting the building of uh, ball fields and swimming pools, and you know much of the kind of public infrastructure there uh, for the community was actually built by the mill. That, the story of housing is, is that they built a kind of initial burst of housing, and then it kind of took on a life of its own. The story, the question of a company stores are actually really an interesting thing. When I was, you know, doing my 80 or so oral history interviews uh, with people who had worked at the S.D. Warren Mill, one of the stories that came up was that, I mean, we're talking in the 1950s, so in living memory, they still had a company store, but if you watch 
labor history films, you know, you associate the company store as this thing that almost enslaved coal miners in Appalachia get paid in script and have to buy things from the company store for like twice the price that you would normally pay for it. Here it was quite the opposite. The company store, which they had all kinds of things for like home products, but basically they would buy things for you and create on an installment plan. You wanted to get a set of, you know, furniture, you get married, you buy a house, you know, which you could afford to do uh, as a paper paper mill worker, and you would want to outfit it with um, furniture, you get all your furniture to this company store, which would actually buy it from Sears somewhere, and then they would do an installment plan with you. So it was actually one of the ways in which the, the mill subsidized the standard of living for workers. Other things that came up in my interviews there um, described how the, the mill had relationships with specific banks to get favorable mortgages for their workers. They had set up a credit union jointly run by the workers and, and the company. So there are all these different ways in which you were kind of cradle to grave taken care of by the company because they were trying to create this ethos of the company really takes care of you. And to jump ahead to something we'll probably talk about at the end, in, the, in sort of the big story of the second half of my book is that what happened in the transition from these uh, sort of, you know, founder run mills, three generations of founders, the Chisholm's, the Worms running the mill for, you know, sons and grandsons. Um, and then eventually what happens is that the structure of the industry changes in the 60s and 70s. And so uh, the main based companies that used to be essentially independent companies become merged with these much larger companies like Scott and Georgia Pacific, and they lose all that sort of local uh, color and flavor. And when the new owners, you know, um, took over, um, they did not honor those kind of understandings and agreements. They might have a bit at first, but it really faded away pretty quickly. And the result of that was that all of the kind of mutual, almost kind of like a moral contract between the workers and, and their mills eroded and caused a lot of problem and eventually a lot of conflict. That um, is an excellent segue because I was going to ask. So turning to the decline of the main paper industry, which happened in the, in the second half of the 20th century. Your work, uh, this book focuses on the worker's experience, but beginning mm -hmm. from a macroeconomic perspective, what are, the, what are the reasons why the industry declined in Maine when, sure. it, did, when it did? So there's kind of a, a sort of a mature phase, which I would describe as kind of the 60s into the 80s, where the industry wasn't declining at that point, but it was changing dramatically. So the, the ownership and management of these companies lost that local flavor. So there were corporate headquarters in you know, other parts of the country, New York, Philadelphia, uh, that were kind of almost conglomerates of paper mills uh, that had been in different companies. And actually, you know, the paper industry, not just one industry, the automobile industry makes cars, trucks, and vans, you might say. And the paper industry makes like hundreds of different products and the, the production processes and the marketing identities of those different types of products are really quite distinct. But what happened is, is that from 1956 to 1975, almost every major paper mill in the main became part of one of these larger companies. And so the managers, instead of coming, working the mill for their whole careers, being a mill manager, you know, the top managerial position, being there for 10 or 15 years at the peak of your career, and then retiring there and continuing to hunt and fish with your neighbors who are workers in the mill, you start to have managers come from outside, coming from different types of product lines. So they didn't really understand the business that the, these particular 
the mills did as well. They wouldn't be there for very long. They would leave at the end. And, and then, of course, the national capital markets, there was a change in capitalism, which I described in my book, a shift from the sort of independent, the top managers run the mill, and it's actually called managerial capitalism, to a financialized capitalism where Wall Street starts to harness the power of huge institutional investors, large pension funds mainly, to start to demand greater profit returns, more short-term profits, all kinds of things that are at odds with the business model of the paper industry, because you're doing like long-term investments in quality skills and research uh, to develop new products or, or better versions of existing products. And all that stuff starts to get kind of stressed and strained. And at a time when who the workers were was changing, um, you know, and I'm a labor historian in part, in the labor history of, say, the 1960s and 70s is that you know, people think of that time as sort of this period of protest and rebellion, whether it was the youth hippie cultural rebellion, whether it's the civil rights movement, uh, feminist movement, anti, uh, anti-war movement in Vietnam. But there was an analog throughout blue collar America where, um, you know, young workers often growing their hair long, if there were men rebelling against authority, were confronting a different kind of capitalism than had existed in the previous half century or so. And out of that friction came a, a lot of militancy and rebellion. And so what you see between starts with the strike at, at Oxford Paper in 1964 and ends, you know, in the early 1980s, you see this like just almost every mill in the state had a major strike during that period, which the workers typically won because they were they were a very cohesive group and they were rebelling against a kind of new form of management that was, uh, you know, at odds with the kind of moral capitalism they had lived with. Then things take a really distinct turn in the 1980s. So you enter the 1980s and the levels of employment in the industry are pretty much where they were in the 1960s. Um, Some decreases of employment, uh, mainly because of automation, because they started to introduce computer control processes that reduce labor requirements some. But what happens is, is that Wall Street takes a look at the paper industry and says, you're this big slumbering giant. You're like the 10th biggest industry in the country, but your profit rates You make a lot of profit, but not as a percentage of sales. And so they wanted to see an increase in profit rates. And they brought in uh, take-no-prisoners CEOs, who in many cases um, were starting to provoke workers to go on strike so that they could permanently replace them with non-union workers, all in the spirit of sort of speeding up the workplace. And the result was a pretty radical, rebellious movement in the state. And trying to explain, you know, what are the things that caused the decline of an industry in the United States manufacturing in the late 20th century? Well, one is globalization. And that's the one that almost everybody thinks about when people talk in the last 10 years about why are so many people going to the extremes in the political system? People say, well, it's because, you know, these folks have been the victims of globalization. Well, they have been the victims of industrial decline, for sure, meaning that um, they've lost livelihoods that they can never match in any other part of the economy, and often in ways that are very um, rough and traumatic. But one of the things that uh, 20th century historians like to talk about, and I'm wondering if you agree with this, is they say an underappreciated factor in the labor market after 1950 or so was not offshoring, but outstating. And with the with the rise of the right, the so-called right to work states after the Taft-Hartley Act, that you see a lot of industries moving from, say, Pennsylvania or Michigan and going to South Carolina and Tennessee, which did not have unionization and had looser labor laws. 
Sure, sure. Um, I know that story well. And like many aspects of uh, the story I tell about the main paper industry, paper industry doesn't fit that model neatly at all. Um, okay. So, so let me just to finish the point I was making before, and I'll come back to your um, sort of observation. So the point I was going to make before is that, so people sort of associate this with globalization, but I would argue that the loss of industrial employment, and you know, economists recognize this fact, comes from three different forces. Uh, one force is, of course, globalization. Um, but I make the point in the book that for, le- for at least the product lines that were made in Maine, the form of globalization that really started to hurt and caused the loss of uh, markets in the U.S. was China's entry into the World Trade Organization, which doesn't happen until 2001. And the decline in the industry that I chronicle sort of like was in full force in the 80s and 90s. So what are the other forces that accounted for that? Well, one is automation. And certainly, especially in the logging sector of the paper industry, which uh, there was a second major technological revolution in wood cutting in the 60s and 70s, which is shifting from chainsaws to mechanical harvesters, which are these huge construction-like machines that just mow the forest down. And that increased productivity by like 600%. So you had a massive drop in employment there. So automation affected mainly the, um, the woods. But in the mills, the other factor was that Wall Street sort of takes over larger corporations throughout the country in the, in the 80s and 90s and insists on this new model in which um, if you can't make high rates of profit, then we're essentially going to put you down like, you know, somebody would put down a, a sick animal. And that's in a lot of ways what happened with, um, with the paper industry per se, and especially in Maine, is that posing unrealistic expectations on, on paper mills. And then the most important part is like bringing it with management strategies that are not about taking an industry that was always a competitive for the long run by investing in all these skills and resources and technology to how can we run this particular product line and this set of machinery really hard for five years and then close it. I'm glad you bring the way you mentioned making profit. As, and I know that based on your work, I'd be preaching to the choir, but of course, that's yeah. how one defines it. Because if if we include the relatively high wages that the workers get from working in paper, that is that doesn't count as profit, but they're all making money and everything else. And so the question is, profit for whom and who who the the sort of major shareholders or stakeholders are yeah. in the yeah. in the paper industry. Exactly. And so that was the, the thing that the workers witnessed is a sort of mismanagement and under-resourcing um, and then aggression on labor relations altogether that sort of ran these institutions that had been for, in some cases, four or five generations, extremely profitable. But, you know, the financialized model of American capitalism after about 1985 said that if you're paying your workers well and giving them benefits or your managers well, you're stealing from the shareholders. And let's find a way to reduce, squeeze, outsource, subcontract. And a version of that came to the main paper industry and and, and in particular ran a lot of these mills into the ground so that in the end, uh, they were they're shut down or shell of themselves by you know the year 2000. And so the other thing I would say is a story about community memory. So these workers had this rich you know shared industrial community that had existed for generations. Um, and when you think about like you know who's the stakeholders in a in a corporation, you know the the original owners you know maybe justifiably deserve to get big profit returns on their uh, creative entrepreneurship. But after that, it just becomes this institution where the stakeholders are all the people who make the paper profitable and the shareholders 
are kind of incidental for a long time because they were just kind of doctors, widows who held stock in SD Warren or whatever. But by the 1980s, you know, you have investment companies managing uh, pension funds who are saying, you're not making enough money for us and led to both the incompetence and the kind you know, almost larceny of this industrial legacy to make a short-term profit. And what I ran across is that people had a real strong sense of the history of their own companies and of the industry. They idolized the founders like Hugh Chisholm and, and Samuel Dennis Warren. Uh, you would probably be familiar with this as an early American historian, kind of a filial pietism, you know, ancestor worship, like the founding fathers of the companies. Oh. Is this huge lore in these communities. And when I tried to unpack it, it's very clear that they all had this keen sense that we had a form of capitalism that was successful for the owners and successful for the workers and community. And the form of capitalism that entered in the late 20th century has taken away that heritage and replaced it with something that's immoral and also not effective as competitive capitalist enterprise. So it was a very, very strong critique of we used to have both a capitalism that was moral in many respects, you know, the sense of mutual obligation, lifetime employment, your kids all got jobs there. I mean, all that kind of stuff. They would take care of you, get sick, you know, cradle to grave almost, you know, generosity. And then what came in later, and I think it's sort of a lesson into thinking about how as capitalism changes, it's not necessarily progress. And I think most of the country right now is thinking about how capitalism um, is causing as many problems as it's solving. And that maybe the version of capitalism we have now, which again, I would argue, first and foremost, is a financialized capitalism, is not necessarily good for the whole community. And, you know, if you wanted to ask, well, what could have happened differently in this particular industry? Well, countries like Germany and Japan don't have the same financial system as we do. And into recent decades, they've been able to continue to support sort of long-term investment strategies of the sort that the paper industry in the U.S. historically had. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that we could put impose different rules in the financial system. And so, for example, Elizabeth Warren has a a proposal called the Accountable Capitalism Act that would make, you know, the role of investors in U.S. follow rules that look a lot like Germany, that would include having workers having a voice in uh, major investment decisions. The other thing that other countries do that we didn't do, which is to have a national strategy for your industry. Executives that I talked to as recently as five years ago are saying, you know, we're getting killed because Canada and Scandinavia and China, they, those governments all invest in supporting their industries. They have what's called an industrial policy. And the only industrial policy that we've had in the last 70 years has been the military industrial complex in supporting the global reach of the American Wall Street financial system. And um, it's been at the expense of workers in places like Maine. I'm going to ask you a fairly basic question, and that is, oftentimes my students, and then in fact many people will just say, oh, well, capitalism, it's just capitalism. Capitalism is when you have people working to try and make money and buying and selling stuff, and that's capitalism, right? And yeah. that's, that's a kind of common response that you'll often get. So in response to that, how would you answer somebody who, who offered that, uh, that explanation? As an economist, how do you how do you define capitalism that separates it from other kinds of economic activity that people have been engaged in forever? Great question. And as I think I alluded to in another conversation, we could probably spend a whole show on this, but let me do a, a short version. Um, the short version would be that, you know, like if you if you take introductory economics, you just have this very spare, bare bones picture of an economy that's basically the supply and demand in individual markets. So there's buyers, there's sellers, there's markets, there's technology, 
There's, you know, goods that consumers can buy. And that's kind of the whole story. What that ignores is that the institutional character of capitalism changes over time and across countries. There is a whole field of uh, kind of capitalism studies that compares the institutional specificities that result in all kinds of important, both economic and societal outcomes in countries like Germany, Japan, and the United States, just to pick couple of examples. And so again, the thing I was pointing to before is that Japan and especially Germany has done much better hanging on to high paid manufacturing jobs because they have a different structure of finance in those countries. And then there's all kinds of other historical contexts as well. So what's the difference between the capitalism of 1950 and the capitalism 2020 in the United States? Well, in 1950, we didn't have global competition at all. We had a closed market. And that had been really true since the beginning of our industrial revolution, because we had had very high trade barriers into the 1930s. You had corporations that were governed basically by the managers and not by the shareholders. It's called managerial capitalism uh, by historians for a reason, which meant they could choose what to do with the profits in a way that was different than what came later. That meant that they could workers unionized and demanded higher wages and benefits, they could take some of the profits and put it towards that. If you wanted to focus on research and development so that you had products coming down the line 20 years from now that would sustain the mill, you could do that. Those were all things that when technical insider business school language for it is the shareholder value movement, where coming out of right-wing economic circles, they said the only purpose of a corporation is not to serve all of its stakeholders, meaning the workers, community, customers, suppliers and shareholders. It was just shareholders. The so-called principle gets shrunk to, or the only stakeholder becomes making profit as defined by, you know, a handful of Wall Street investment firms who demanded, you know, these high short-run profits. And so not only did this account for a decline in manufacturing jobs that were unionized, but also for accounts for how the growing entrepreneurial cutting edge businesses of the last 40 years have approached their workforces as well. So Walmart, Amazon, <laughs> Google, what you can see in these companies is a very low wage model because that's all Wall Street would tolerate. And what you also see is a penchant for subcontracting and outsourcing, subcontracting, you know, domestic jobs here. Um, you don't pay, you don't hire, if you're a, a big company, white collar, or blue collar, you don't hire your own uh, uh, security guards, your uh, janitorial crews. Um, and, and as a result, all those jobs went from being well-paid jobs as part of those big profitable companies to just minimum wage jobs or even less. So, you know, I think that, I, I think the two big problems of our age caused by capitalism is uh, inequality in all its different forms and climate change. And the version of capitalism we have right now has made both of those worse. And most people are aware of that in some form or another. Most people would probably have a little bit of intuition that the way the economy worked when the, the land was kind of ruled by companies like General Motors, Kodak, and IBM looks a lot different than the world that people are trying to find their way in now. Now flipping the perspective around, I'm familiar enough with your work to know that you've articulated these, these arguments about the, the nature of capital and labor for some time now in various publications, quite eloquently. One of the important features of this new project of yours, though, is that it involved talking to, I think it was around 150 people, you said, yes? Yeah. So having interviewed all of these workers, how did the stories they tell you and their perspectives change how 
you think about these big processes as an economist? I would say a couple things that I learned. This was not assembly line work, that it was kind of like you were talking about a team of highly skilled, highly articulated workers, managers, um, engineers, and scientists working in a process that was much more like a craft process than a mass production process. And all the things I was telling you earlier before about the kind of distinct labor history and the paternalism, all that kind of grows out of understanding that. You know, which is to say, like, we shouldn't generalize about who blue collar workers are. <laughs> sure. You know, they, they have very distinct experiences. I also learned how I had no idea how harsh the work life was. Uh, and a lot of what I learned in the book was, you know, how did people come to terms with subjugating themselves to the kind of uh, work lives where they were under stress their whole time? I mean, shift work, you know, one, one, one week a month of doing the graveyard shift your whole career. Workers would work seven days on, a day or two off, seven days on, day. So they were missing, you know, much of their family life growing up. People got injured. There were chemical factories. There were all kinds of like lung disease and, you know, cancers and things like that. So how did they come to terms with all that? And I think it's one of the poignant and fascinating things to me was that their pride in their industrial might, they were making famous products um, and they were responsible for the quality and, and kind of the sort of like, if you feel proud that you make a beautiful Cadillac, it was like you made, you're proud if you made uh, IBM cardstock or Sears catalog paper, whatever it was. So there was all of that. And then I think the other thing was that the thing I was saying before about automation, globalization and financialization, they're the ones who told me that, you know, they didn't use this language, but, you know, it was the new financialized version of capitalism that kind of ran their mills into the ground. And they literally cited all the different ways in which outside managers with short-term expectations in terms of making profits and often a lack of understanding of the specific skills involved in making particular papers was the main reason that both the mills went into the ground, but also because it was the source of all the conflict that led to all the big strikes in the 80s. So those are the things I learned and managers and workers, you know, when I say I interviewed people, it wasn't just, you know, people um, working on the shop floor, but it was also the people who ran the mills, people uh, I talked to, I had a great interview with the corporate vice president, got the CEO suite side of it. So yeah, those are the things I learned. Was there any sort of major narrative thread for most of the people you talk to that you just really didn't expect or maybe even sort of went against your uh, your big picture understanding of the American economy? Sure. And I would say that anybody who does interview-based research, whether you're a sociologist or an anthropologist or an oral historian, you always are surprised by what people teach you. One thing I would, would most fo focus on is this sort of, you know, memories of the founders um, that, you know, I had 30-year-olds tell me that, well, if Samuel Dennis Warren still ran this mill, you know, he'd be rolling, you know, he's rolling in his grave at the way they're running this mill into the ground. And then listening to the stories that they associated with, and like the biggest story in Westbrook, S.D. Warren was um, of all these um, bailout stories that, you know, my grandfather, you know, it was a great depression and he wasn't very careful with his money and he wasn't working as many shifts. and He got way behind on his grocery bill and the company just came in and paid his back $200 bill at the lo local grocery store. That was a lot of money back then, obviously. And then they would take a dollar out of your paycheck for as long as it took to pay off that thing. So these kind of rescue stories and bailout stories that they told, like 10 different people told me these stories unprompted, they would say, and they were just metaphorical stories. They weren't like things that, you know, sometimes there were things that happened. Sometimes there were things that became stories that 
who knows if they were correct or not, but almost like, you know, if, if one union leader said that, you know, if your furnace ran out of oil in the winter and you weren't able, or coal, maybe it might've been, and you weren't able to go to work and concentrate because you're worried about your kids at home being in the cold, then same with Dennis Warner himself would come over and fill your tank. And so it was really quite striking that they were telling me these stories kind of unprompted. And I started to look for them and I got this whole paternalistic story, but there was more to it than that. And what it was is that owners used to have a moral obligation to their workers. Now, whether or not it was consistently filled out or whether or not maybe some of the workers are in some kind of denial about, you know, the harshness that they had to put up with to actually do those careers. They said, this is, you know, capitalism should have a morality to it. And we can point to historical examples. This is what we knew. And it was there for five generations and it was taken away from us by people who had malintent and a lack of, I think, um, expertise to be doing what they were doing, meaning the new owners and managers that came in in the 80s and 90s. So your project has come out after a few years in what has to be the golden age of both superficial and perhaps slightly less superficial investigations into America's Rust Belt and Hmm. and frustrated, sad, out-of-work communities from Akron, Ohio to everywhere else. And of course, there's the dreaded diner conversations with with, uh, a certain demographic of of blue-collar workers. And so Hmm. having spoken to so many people, it sounds like they have this very lived, uh, visceral, but also very thoughtful narrative about what happened. Yeah. And so they're no fools. And so I'm guessing that they don't think that we can just sort of put Humpty Dumpty back together again. What is it? And obviously not everybody agrees, but still, I'm going to ask you the dreaded question. What do these people want? Knowing what they know and having experienced what they have, what sort of tangible changes do they seem to want? My interviews and research sort of captured the story at its peak, meaning sort of ironically the peak of decline, if that's a correct way of putting it, in uh, you know, the period between 1965 and say 2000. The bulk of interviews I did were between 2000 and 2012. So they were looking back on that 30 or 40 years. You know, what's happened at this point is that the mills that still exist, and we've gone from like two dozen to six or seven, depending on how you count it, with much smaller workforces. People in those communities who still work there, there's definitely a lot of um, poverty and downward mobility in those communities. Um, on the other hand, I've seen, you know, workers, I and mean, most of these people are like the men and women both, you know, are really skillful rural people who work with their hands and find six different ways to make some money. But, you know, in the end, there's like a lot of drug abuse in those communities. The youth just come of age and leave. These communities in many ways are dying. So, I think that in terms of their long belief that the death of their way of life was self-inflicted from people at the top and, you know, the faraway owners and managers, what I heard from them and what I heard from, again, managers as well, is that we had had some kind of industrial policy that promoted and supported maintaining the ability of these highly effective industrial enterprises to continue in the way of life that came with it that would have been a pretty good solution. And it's so late in the game now that that's almost moot. You're just not going to bring back 20,000 paper mill jobs to rural Maine under almost any foreseeable circumstances. But these are people who believe in making things. They believe in industrial skills. And I think a lot of their reticence about what's happened to our economy the way they've experienced is very, very well placed. 
And I think that one way it's played out, there are a lot of stories that I kind of know something about, but maybe I didn't have time to do the research to write about it carefully. But in particular, the Millinocket region has seen this conflict going for 20 years since Great Northern Paper shut down in 1999. The kind of local small business people wanted to turn towards tourism as a solution. And the paper workers largely rejected that. And from, from some of the anecdotal things I've heard, they still reject it to this day because they believe that they're, they have the skills to make paper. And if the right, they get the right investor, which at this point has turned into ironically a Chinese company called nine dragons now owns several mills, the few main mills in Maine and, you know, keeping them uh-huh. running because they have a different investment model. I would say of note that these were communities that were at one time after um, the new deal, actually the sort of home, of support for the Democratic Party in you know the 50s and 60s. And now these are communities with the notable exception of Madawaska and where Fraser Paper is that majority in the last two elections have voted uh, primarily for um, Donald Trump. Um, you know, and I think they're the disaffected blue collar workers that heard somebody say that 30 years of Democratic and Republican trade policy have screwed us. They, they buy that. Um, but that's, that's about all I think I can say about that. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm glad you you bring up that political angle because, as as you well know, this is part of a broader phenomenon in the industrialized world of industrial workers and and, and blue collar types who suffered most with the digital revolution and globalization and have struggled the most. We see those demographics in the U.S. and France and the U.K. and elsewhere all expressing similar frustrations, both economic and social. So I'm wondering, having spent so much time in Maine, are there aspects of the Maine story that maybe change how you think about this broader political and economic trend in the world? It's something that I'm really interested in. And I just would have to say that, you know, I'm very hesitant to speak for the working class of Maine about their politics. Sure. Uh, when when I feel like I, I mean, I kind of know their historical thinking <laughs> about their situation, but not, you know, their current political thinking. But, you know, I would just say, I think there's just two categories of what's going on. I think there's one category, which is that financialization, globalization is a new form of capitalism that screwed a a valid economic way of life, period. Mm-hmm. And Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, people like that, they were right at the forefront of continuing free trade policies that were most notably started by Bill Clinton and not by Ronald Reagan. I think the other category is this broad, amorphous, contentious, highly debatable whiteness narrative, for lack of a better way of putting it, that, um, that people... You know, there's a sense that what the federal government has done over the last 50 years is to not help people like us Mm -hmm. and us being small town white people. And how much of that is A, understandable, B, questionable, C, fed by too many people watching Fox News, um, you know, where whiteness narratives are really just sort of at the center of everything. I think it's an empirical question, you know, which parts of these forces that would account for a more conservative shift in, in mm-hmm. presidential uh, um, and congressional uh, elections in paper mill towns over the last 30 years. And um, I think it's important work that still needs to be done. And certainly Bernie Sanders did very well in Maine in the Democratic primaries. Of course, yeah. Uh, for yeah. not just regional reasons, but so there's something to be said for that as well. I think people are searching for answers. 
because I think the status quo of the last 30 years, again, has produced a capitalism that between inequality and climate change has made the world for as many wonderful products that we have that are digital and all kinds of cool things that we have. Um, we have a economic society that is not doing well by a lot of us. And I think people are reacting to that in a very broad, deep way right now. What I would hope would be the kind of discussions that, you know, everything from reviving union rights to child support policies, to explicit policies to, in a productive way, bring back manufacturing to places like rural Maine, which is within the scope or the reach of the federal government um, if policymakers choose it. And I would hope we would focus, focus our discussion on that. Do you see, because you said you, you ended at the sort of depth of the decline, were there any positive stories of revival or renewal that you've noticed in the past couple of years? Um, well, I think the story of the mills that have hung on in Maine, you know, demonstrate that you can still make profitable paper in Maine. Scott Paper, which had bought uh, S.D. Warren uh, in 1967, actually financed the construction of the biggest mill still running in the state, which is the Somerset Hinkley Mill, S.D. Warren division of uh, SAPI, which is the African company that owns it. It's near um, Skowhegan and Winslow. And that mill, uh, they built it in the late 70s through early 90s. And uh, it was a really high-tech, well-designed mill. And it's been going strong ever since. And I think it just suggests that you can make main paper profitably here as you could any any other part of the country. You know, if we were to adopt a different set of institutional rules, it's possible for us to continue um, certainly to have well-paying jobs for people in all parts of the country, but in particular manufacturing. Great. So aside from shredding paper, is there anything else on the horizon for you that you'd like that our listeners should check out? Yeah, so um, my first shout out goes to Charlie Scontras, who's kind of the institutional labor historian of the state. And he's got a long series of books. Uh, his most recent one from about three years ago is called Deindustrialization in Maine. I'm paraphrasing the the title, but I would urge people who want to know more about Maine labor history to go there. Uh, I would highlight the work of Jason Newton, a young uh, labor historian and historian of capitalism who tells the story of the rise of capitalism in the Maine woods and how we got the unique logging system. And his work is rich and brilliant. He's currently a professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. I would also point to uh, Harry Arsenault's uh, Milltown, which is about cancer clusters in Rumford and coming to terms with that. And then, of course, the great Monica Wood, who I admire greatly, who grew up in uh, Rumford, actually Mexico, which is Mexico. Rumford is a community that had Oxford paper. Um, her memoir called When We Were the Kennedys, um, which taught me a lot. I mean, maybe more than anything else, reinforced that some of the things that I had discovered about the lore that people had about their communities was really, really true. So um, those, those are all things that I would point to. Excellent. Michael Hillard, thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. That's our show. For links to the books mentioned in our discussion, follow us on Twitter at Mainly History. Join us next time as we discuss the evolving culture and art of quilting in Maine over 250 years. In the 19th century, Maine women, who were largely ignored in male-written town histories, created a vibrant parallel history of their communities across the region. In doing so, they provided us with a richer, more complete, and of course, aesthetically pleasing history of Maine. That's next time 
on Mainly History.